electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Sarah, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to Overtime. I'm Scott Wapner. You just heard the bells. We're just getting started in just a little bit. I'll speak to Gabriela Santos of J.P. Morgan. Why she says we got a lot more than we bargained for from the Fed chair last week. Star VC Rick Heitzman is back. He weighs in on Snap's ambitious new game plan and whether it will jumpstart that stock in the months ahead. We begin, though, with our talk of the tape. New month, same choppy market. That is the question as September looms large now. Let's ask Ritholtz Wealth Management's Josh Brown. He's also a CNBC contributor and member of the Halftime Investment Committee. It's good to see you. Uh, we're not in technically great shape heading into a new month. That's for sure, right? We're actually uh, we're in terrible shape on the intermediate term trend, but we're getting back toward uh, some oversold conditions, which could augur well for a bounce. So really, like the answer to your question depends on what somebody is playing for. If somebody is in the market for a two or three day scalp and they want to buy a stock that's, you know, down 30 percent, they think it'll bounce 8 percent and they think they can time that, they should do that. I don't think that's what most people want to do or can do or should do. So let's talk about what the situation is for most people. Today is the 100th day that the S&P 500 has been below its 200 day moving average. Um, that hasn't happened. Since, you have to go back to the financial crisis. So this is the only one that didn't V and didn't get us back to those new highs and stayed in a dip or stayed in correction. And for the NASDAQ, it's the same story. And you have to ask yourself, well, what has really changed? And the big picture that's really changed is that you had a Fed put for a very long time that made buying dips easy. And now things have gotten a lot more challenging because that put is gone. And not only is the put gone, but the Fed deliberately, they're not going to hold a press conference and say this. They're not going to buy banner ads on Yahoo Finance announcing this. The Fed wants the stock market down. It wants wage growth to slow down or even possibly go negative. It wants home prices down. It wants the supply of capital funding everything from IPOs to LBOs to uh, fade away. And once those financial conditions have tightened sufficiently, the data on inflation will start to go the Fed's way and not a moment before. And if you don't understand that or you refuse to accept that, then you're fully invested from January well, and you're eating everything this market has to tell some, you, to you. Some don't some don't believe that they're going to have the wherewithal to, to go through with it, that they'll have the nerve to do everything that they okay. say. You're right that that's I'm so what glad they you say. said that. But there are some people who so say, glad. show me, right? Show me, like Mohammed Alarian, okay. show me. Yeah, so what's the alternative? What's the alternative then? That the Fed flip-flops? How much worse would that be for, uh, for investor sentiment, honestly? Like, how much worse would it be to say, you know what, we give up, we're just going to let inflation do what it's going to do and run its course, and it'll come down naturally, which is something we've been hearing people say now for, for months which is which is silly. So I don't think that the Fed has a choice other than to follow through on what it's what it's saying, because the alternative is so much worse. 
um, and it prolongs the inevitable. So, look, I'm not in the camp that says the Fed has to do this extreme tightening. I just think that if your whole game plan is like, I want to be in it for when the Fed says, you know, they're good and there's some sort of a pivot, there could be a lot of pain between now and then. I think that's really the major point. One other thing, and let's all try to understand the history here. Um, and Powell very uh, understands the history very well. In the early 1980s, the last time we were fighting an inflation spike like this, you have to understand that they were calculating inflation differently. Housing was a much, much larger component in the inflation data and the methodology that they used. That, that has not been the case since. Um, but if you were to normalize those same inflation metrics from the early 80s and use housing the way that it used to be used, Real inflation right now would not be 9.1%. It would be greater than 10, maybe close to 12. Mm -hmm. Ask yourself, what, what did the Fed do to fight that at that time? Well, the Fed went to like 20% Fed funds rate. So I don't think anyone's considering doing that. And now it's even harder, actually, for them to try to do something that drastic. Because back then, um, debt to GDP was something like 30% or, or 35%, and now it's over 100%. So they have that constraint. If they try to jack rates up to a level that would really kill off inflation immediately, mm -hmm. um, the, the government wouldn't be able to fund itself, you, you, and a lot of stuff would blow up. So they ain't going to do it. You made, you, you made essentially what was a don't fight the Fed argument at, at the beginning, right? You said this is what they want, and they're intent on, on getting it done. The question is... Um, if you shouldn't fight the Fed, how bad do you think it could be? Jeremy Grantham uh, is out with a note today that some are passing around. He's talking about a super bubble uh, in stocks. He says equities are overvalued, bonds are, housing. It's all going to collide with higher rates and inflation to cause more pain. Now, Jeremy Grantham being negative on the market, before you say it, I will. Nothing new. Um, he's not always right. Uh, sometimes he's early. Sometimes he's just dead wrong. The question is, will he be right this time and looking for a significant collapse in stocks for all the reasons that you just said. And he's not the only one saying, by the way, that that could happen as a result of Fed action. I don't have the ability to predict what the economy or the market's going to do. So the shorthand that I have always used to manage risk is uh, technical analysis. I've been on the show for, I don't know, 11 years up until this year, bullish almost every appearance made tons of enemies, all kinds of fintwit people used to get mad. The market would go up, the Fed had your back, and I would just state the obvious. And for whatever reason, that was infuriating to people that were missing out on the markets. Um, this February, at the end of February, I told you that for the first time uh, in a long time, the NASDAQ was now falling into a downtrend and had closed on a 10-month moving average below that important trend line. 10-month is like roughly 200, 200 day, um, so roughly the same idea. And then at the end of April, I told you the same thing, but for the S&P 500. And never once have I ever said like, I can see the next turn that's coming, or I know exactly how low this will go before it turns. I have Look, no idea. I don't need a, no, what I don't I'm need a is, predictive number from you. I need a predicted direction from you. And because of all why? the things that but you why? see, what if what if all right, what if we did this? What if we did this yeah. instead of that? Yeah, which is obviously magical thinking and I can't deliver on it. Not necessarily. Maybe somebody can. I can't. Instead of that, instead of that, what if I told you we know 
when you're below the 200 day or the 10 month moving average, we know for sure that rallies will have a tendency to fail spectacularly okay. until that level is broken. We know for sure that volatility in both directions will be amplified relative to what it normally is. For instance, 47 of the 50 wildest days for the S&P up and down have taken place while the market was below its 200 day. And if I give you the stats on a falling 200 day, it's even worse than that. So, so if we know these things, what do we do with that information? A, we don't buy our 21st best idea, right? We wanna own just the stuff that we really love. Uh, B, we're not on margin. C, we're not out there looking for opportunities to add. We're out there looking for opportunities to take profit. D, there's like this whole run of things that you do and don't do when you're in an, a defined bear market. That bear market is intact, August rally notwithstanding. And what, tell me, what would change it right now? I can't think of the thing. Maybe we just, we've sold enough and, and inflation all of a sudden falls out of the sky to 4%. I'm not saying it can happen. I'm saying, why would you bet that way? Why would you bet that way? I hear you. So until people get this until people get this into their heads, it's not going to be fun. Like, this is not going to be a pleasant environment. Okay. And today is, like, one more reminder of that. So I got you to go where I wanted you to go. It just took a little bit of more effort than I expected it might. Thank you. Liz Young. <laughs> <laughs> I've added her to the conversation now. She's right here in front of me. Uh, SoFi's head of investment strategy. It's nice to see you. Thank you for coming all the way here. Uh, of course. How do you see it? You heard what Josh had to say. What's September going to hold? Look, well, Okay. If we retest the lows, I think it happens in September. You so think we're going to? I think in order to do so, something would have to get materially worse than it was on June 16th. The expectation of something would have to get materially worse. We're still in bearish sentiment as investors, but we're not as bearish as we were mid-June. So here are a few things that would make it materially worse. Okay. If earnings revisions start to come in for 2023, which we're not gonna know this in September, we're not gonna know this until October, but let's say they start coming in and they're revised down by 10%, 15%, then I'm nervous, right? Okay. Then we have a bear market plus a possible earnings recession, which usually results in an economic recession. But it is likely that earnings revisions are going to, to happen yep. and they're going to come down. It just has to be right? bigger than it is already. So far, they're only down really 3% in 2023, right? So they have to be materially worse. And there's a good possibility that they will be because you have to think about what's been driving the strength in earnings so far is the fact that inflation has allowed revenue to grow. So if inflation comes down, which is what we're all hoping for, if it comes down, that also means for a lot of companies that revenue comes down, the top line comes down. Mm -hmm. And if their costs stay the same, then earnings will suffer. So if those revisions start to come in sharply lower for the next 12 months or for 2023 as a whole, let's call it 10 to 15% lower, okay. then yes, we retest the lows, maybe go through them. Does, does more hawkish Fed than we thought count on your list of material things that have to happen to push you in that direction? How could they get more hawkish than they already are? Well, I, what, what, I, what I mean by that is this higher for longer. There's a disbelief, I think, in the market that they're going to have the resolve, the wherewithal to, to do what they say they're going to do. Um, it's Powell telling you that we're going to raise rates. It's Mester today saying above 4% for a long period of time. I don't think... A whole bunch of people believe in the higher for longer deal. If they did, they'd be more negative on the market. So what if it is a higher for longer inflation and rates picture 
That yeah. can't be good for stocks, can it? No, it, that wouldn't be good for stocks at all. That's what I mean by being so, more hawkish. Higher for longer. Yeah, I, I think a better way, a, a word to use is restrictive. So the Fed needs to get restrictive. What that would mean is that they have to get the Fed funds rate above inflation. So that means inflation needs to fall and the Fed funds rate needs to continue to rise. If we're at 4% in early 2023 and inflation is still year over year 5 or 6%, that's really not restrictive yet. So it's possible that they have to stay at that level. I don't know, I don't think anybody knows whether or not this economy or this market can take higher rates and how much room we have mm -hmm. to take a rate that high. What about... We're getting... Uh, we're you know getting what? Hang close. on, Josh, real quick. Josh, Josh, a good point. Hang on real quick. I'm sorry. I'm, I'll come right back to you. But Okta is out. We were waiting on some more earnings, and I think the stock's down like four or five bucks. Um, or four or five percent. Let's uh, go to Steve Kovac. He, uh, he has the numbers here. Steve, what do we see here? Okta? Yeah, Scott, it's down about 5% now, almost 6%. Um, and it, despite it being a beat on the top and bottom lines, we're looking at a Q2 loss of $0.10 cents per share versus the estimate of $0.30 cents per share. Revenue is coming in at $452 million versus estimates of $431 million. Um, and then with as far as Q3 revenue guidance, uh, they're just it's basically in line with estimates here, um, but they are predicting that the loss is not going to be as bad as they had originally thought. So a lot of good news in this report. We're still digging through to find out why the shares are down almost 6% here, Scott. Uh, Kovac, thank you. That's Steve Kovac joining us there. Josh, I know you don't own it, but I know you do follow it, at least for this type of, uh, type of stock, right? These software names were once to the moon uh, and beyond, and they've fallen back to earth. Yeah, and a lot of these cases, they, they have good earnings or even great earnings, but the, the earnings report is like almost a formality at this point. It's just a reason, another reason for people to get out. So I would not go looking for great earnings reports as the thing that's going to save you from a stock that's like in a 30 or 40% drawdown. A lot of the recoveries in the old high flyers um, are going to turn out to have been L-shaped recoveries at best. Um, and of course, there are worse kinds. But um, I don't know if that'll be the case with this. I guess the call will say. But mm -hmm. bigger picture, Liz mentioned, Liz mentioned, like, what are some of the things that could send us through that low? So, so like, leaving aside any geopolitical stuff, just like, like uh, real-world stuff that affects both the stock market and Main Street to a yeah. great degree, the first, is, the first is take a look at the semiconductors. I have said repeatedly that I, re I regard this group as the new transports. I think anything that you're shipping these days has a chip in it, maybe five chips in it. And we cannot ignore the fact that that sector is now round tripping back to the summer lows very rapidly. It's only 10% above that low. That could easily violate. And the SOX has tended to lead the overall NASDAQ uh, over the last year. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Two. Are, are floating rate loans the new subprime? I would love to hear Liz's take on this, um, working in financial services as she does. Uh, but the new murmurings that we're hearing now is that you've got this $1.5 trillion asset class that really has only been popular for third-party investors in the last five years or so. It's always existed, but it hasn't really become a, quote, investment product up until sometime last decade. Um, that $1.5 trillion in, in loans, leveraged loans, that adjust, uh, floating rate loans and leveraged loans, that adjusts higher. Mm -hmm. So interest rates were at like zero to start the year. So I know it's already August and we've had eight months, but look at how much of a change that we've seen 
underlying the rates as those debts roll off and have to be replaced. Um, and that is something that maybe not enough people are focused on or looking at. How systemic is that market to everyone else? I think it's a uh, good point. I, it doesn't have to be the new subprime. No, but I think I th it's a good okay, point. And I last. Think, well, let me let Liz, let, let me let, let Liz respond. Let me let Liz respond to that, and then we'll All come right. back to you for the last. Uh, because one can, okay. can surmise that um, when the tide goes out, mm -hmm. it's still yet to go out, right? I mean, that's sort of what Powell alluded to, yeah. right? You put all this stuff into the system and it takes a long time to get through. Mm -hmm. Tide hasn't fully gone out yet, right? We don't fully yeah. know what the impact is on the economy, on the market, on loans, on this, that, and the other. So to answer the question directly first, are they the new subprime? I don't think they have the power to take the economy down like subprime loans did because there's just not enough exposure and there's not as many layers reaching out into all tentacles of the economy like there were in 2008 in that crisis. However, the thing about floating rate loans is that many of them are sub-investment grade. And that matters. So you try to refinance that. You think about the credit quality of those loans. At this point, you're right, Scott, we haven't seen credit spreads blow out yet. We're at about 520 basis points on mm -hmm. high yield spreads. That's nowhere near where they would be in the middle of a crisis. But here's the thing. If and when they blow out, they blow out fast. And it could take a lot of things down with it. There's some contagion in that. There's some sentiment contagion in that. And mm -hmm. then you start to hear the word default, which is something that absolutely kills consumer and investor sentiment. The, the other thing, Josh, is this idea that uh, Tina is dead. There is no alternative, is no more. And I think I read that the, the yield on the two-year yields double the dividend yield of the S&P 500 right now. So whereas there yeah. was no alternative to stocks, now there obviously is. Well, if you tell me you have a 10-year time horizon plus, I'm still telling you stocks. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you to eat, what, eat the volatility that's coming your way. Um, because there are very few rolling 10-year periods where stocks don't deliver. Um, so, so let's just clarify, like we're talking about this year. Um, but to, to the point that you made to Liz about subprime, uh, not, not, subprime was not in itself systemic. Subprime was a canary in the coal mine, and the losses there triggered losses in higher tranches of, mm -hmm. of mortgage and, and housing-related debt. So I, I guess it's semantics. But um, in, in my third case that I think we need to uh, just understand is the housing market is going lower. It's taken a long time because there's no supply. But at a certain point, the bow breaks. Where does it break? Is 5.75% is uh, on a 30-year on a mortgage? Is that the level? Is it six? It's six and a quarter. Do we even ever have to get there? At some point, the losses in housing mm. are starting are going to start becoming more noticeable, and not just for people who were trying to sell a home. That's a tiny slice of the market. You need to think about the, the wealth effect. If we think the wealth effect from stocks is powerful, well, let me tell you, for most of America, for the largest slice of the, of the demography of this country, the value of the house is everything. It's, it's even more powerful than somebody getting a raise um, and, and so when you see those trends, we had a 44% gain in home prices in two years. When that gets thrown into reverse, what is the impact? So people that are on the network all day, not on your show because you check them, but they're going like, oh, well, inflation is, is peaking and it's going to start to come down by itself. Yeah, but why? Like, be careful what you wish for about, quote unquote, inflation coming down by itself. A, it ain't coming down by itself. It's coming down for a reason. If the reason why is because we have an acceleration 
in the deterioration of the housing market, mm-hmm. the effects on the rest of the economy are very large. It's not something to play games with. So last word from, from you, Liz. Mm-hmm. Um, is it time to be defensive in that part of the market? People aren't talking so much about the once hot defensive areas of the market, like Staples, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Now I hear, well, play Apple because it's defensive and play the mega caps because they're defensive again. But what about getting really defensive I mean, in the purest sense? Look, if, if we're headed for a recession, you have to keep the traditional recession plays out. And I think those are still staples, utilities, and even treasuries in this environment. If, you, if your take is that we're going into a recession, that means at some point in the next 12 months, the Fed does have to cut rates, in which case you do see some defense action in those treasury markets. So it's okay to own that stuff. Now, I think another place that people can think about to play defense is healthcare, And that's a long-term play. Mm-hmm. But traditionally in the large cap space, I would use healthcare as defense. I am just not on the tech bandwagon, whether you want to call it defense or offense. Tech is, is not my thing today. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. A lot of people like healthcare, by the way. Josh, thank you. Liz Young, thank you as well. Thank Let's you. get to our Twitter question of the day now. We want to know which of these August Dow duds is ready to rally. Is it Salesforce, 3M, Walgreens, or Nike? You can head to at CNBC Overtime on Twitter and cast your vote. We'll share the results later on in our show. Up next, Snap's new game plan. The social media stock is rallying today. The company announcing a major restructuring. Noted venture capitalist Rick Heitzman calling it a come-to-Jesus moment for that company and others. He'll explain why when we come back on OT. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. We're back in overtime. Check out shares of Snap soaring today, 9%. That's after the social media company announced it would cut 20% of its staff as part of a sweeping restructuring plan. Our next guest says it should help the stock if and when a slowdown hits. Joining us now, star venture capitalist Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital. It's good to see you again. Hey, Scott. How are you? I'm good. I remember our conversation after earnings. Um, you hit him with a sledgehammer. Does this... Yeah. Now you put on kid gloves now? I mean, how, how does this move match up with, with what you think here? No, this is exactly what they should have been doing. This is exactly what the best companies have done over the course of 2022, is your cost of capital increased tremendously, and Snap was probably the last company to take action on it. Snap grew their employee base over 100% you know, during the first two years of the pandemic and never had announced the layoffs. And now what this shows is Snap's taking the macroeconomic economic conditions seriously getting thinning down and focusing on the key priorities. Is the story intact? 
It isn't tech. It isn't. I think they were losing focus. They were focusing on drones. They were focusing on all these other projects. Now they're back to their core business, AR, communications, ad-sponsored content. And I think what they're going to they're going to skinny themselves down and focus on what's going to get through, get them through the recession. What do you make of this new COO position? I'm wondering if it takes a little bit of the onus off of Spiegel, what it means in the, in the big picture. Um, you know, I'm not saying it's an unusual move, but maybe it's just <clears throat> unusual in that it, it, it happens now. What is it a sign of? I'm not sure what it means. I mean, Evan has always been a product-focused CEO, and a lot of the great entrepreneurs, founder CEOs are product focused going back to jobs. And you know, to bring someone in from the technology side to kind of sit between operations, product, ad, and, and technology is an odd place for them to bring someone in. But I, I don't know him well enough to know what the real role is going to be. But obviously, uh, everyone's going to need more support if we expect a downturn. But, but you don't take anything of it, for example, that it's a sign of a step back in any way from, from Evan? I don't believe so. I, don't, I, I assume the questions that he's going to get are to that effect of, you know, he lost two key executives today. They, you know, they went to Netflix to run the ad-supported side of Netflix, and they might have needed to have a battlefield promotion. Okay. And that my guess would be Evan is, is completely locked into the future of the company, and they need a battlefield promotion to rally the troops uh, and to focus them going forward. I got you. Uh, I spoke with uh, Glenn Kacher the other day of, of Light Street, tech investor, venture capitalist like yourself. I asked him about the current environment, what, what he makes of it here, what he thinks is going to happen going forward. I want you to listen to what he said about the pullback right. in many parts of tech and what he thinks happens from here, and then you can opine on the backside of that. Sure. This seems like a, you know incredible buying opportunity for our industry. And um, so we're incredibly positive, and, and we, we like the portfolio that we have built uh, to come out of the, the current environment that we're in right now. We're kind of bouncing along a bottom here and uh, expect that ultimately when uh, investors decide to come back and take position, more positions in this sector, that we're in the right stocks that are going to benefit greatest from, from that, uh, that re-rating. Oh, what do you think of Kacher? Uh, I think the, the key thing he said is if you're in the right stocks, so I don't think this is a broad-based, you know, the market's going to continue to rise after Labor Day and everybody's going to be rewarded. I think the best companies are going to continue to be rewarded. As we think about first market, what we're going to focus on kind of after Labor Day, back to school, back to work, period, it's going to be how do you identify which are the babies, which are the bathwater, to use an analogy that we've used over the last year, and which companies are really the most excellent companies who are going to benefit fit in a downturn and are going to continue to execute because they have strong leadership and which companies might have succeeded just because uh, the tide lifting all boats in the last cycle, but not, might not be strong enough to really survive and thrive in the coming downturn. I've asked you before to sort of game out the Twitter Musk deal. Yes. Uh, the whistleblower thing, does it change anything in your mind? I think How's it's it I think out? it's noise. I think it's noise. I don't think it goes to the core problem. If they're still trying to focus on the bots, if they're trying to focus on, hey, you know, misincenting the uh, the executives to not count bots, I think that's a small part of the problem. And I, I don't I don't believe it's going to be material enough to get a, to get Elon out of his problems. So deal ha deal happens as is written. 
I think I still think they still cut a deal. Oh. I think there's going to be some compromise. Mm. You know, the Delaware courts can't afford to lose it on appeal. Um, Elon can't afford to have this continue to keep going, especially the direction the test was going. There's going to be a compromise deal in which Elon buys the company is right. my my guess. And it's been for the last uh, six months. But we're probably going to find out in about three more. Look forward to that. All right, Rick, thank you. That's Rick Heitzman joining awesome. us today. Always wonderful seeing you, Scott. Yep, I'll see you soon. Up next, hike and hold. J.P. Morgan's Gabriela Santos has a new playbook post-Jackson Hole. She'll break it down for us straight ahead. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. Well, welcome back. It's time for a CNBC News update with Shepard Smith. Hi, Shep. Hello, Judge. From the news on CNBC, here's what's happening. The Trump legal team has until 8 o'clock Eastern time tonight to respond to an explosive Department of Justice legal brief on the search of Mar-a-Lago. A Florida judge is deciding whether to appoint a special master. In a late night filing, the DOJ stated that classified documents were likely concealed and moved from a storage room at the former president's home as part of what the DOJ calls an effort to obstruct the investigation. Included with the filing, this photo is our first look at what Justice Department says are top secret documents recovered during the search earlier this month. The FBI says it seized more than 100 classified documents, including three classified records found in the former president's office. A hearing to decide whether to appoint a special master scheduled for tomorrow in Florida. Tonight, more on the Mar-a-Lago search and the potential legal trouble for the former president, plus nuclear inspectors on the ground now in Ukraine and new neighborhoods being built entirely off the grid. We'll show you them on the news right after Jim Cramer, 7 Eastern, CNBC. Scott, back to you. All right. Look forward to that. Shep, thank you. That's Shepard Smith. More than we bargained for. That is what my next guest says. Fed Chair Jerome Powell delivered last Friday in Jackson Hole, and she has a new playbook as a result. Gabriela Santos, global market strategist with J.P. Morgan Asset Management, joining me once again live. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, Scott. So you were with me right before Powell. Now, post-Powell, you say we got more than we bargained for. In what way? So when I was there with you pre-Jackson Hole, we had a a wish list of what we wanted to hear. We wanted a lot more visibility on what kind of data they're looking for, where they expect to take rates and for how long. But we actually thought it was very unlikely to hear anything about these short-term dynamics. Instead, we did hear a lot from Chair Powell. uh, And the fact that he had such a short and direct speech, I think, really forced investors to listen to what a lot of Fed members had already been saying for weeks. It's going to take a lot more softening in the inflation data to calm their fears down. It's going to take a lot more softening in the labor market data as well to get the Fed pivot back in play. And what that means is rates higher, closer to 4% by the end of the year and staying there through 2023. Mm. And I think we're starting to price that in better, but we're not quite there yet. Okay, so what does that higher for longer scenario mean for stocks? Can't be great. 
So I think it means, first of all, higher real yields. Because remember, the first leg of the stock market rally during the midsummer night stream there uh, was related to the plunge in real yield from 0.9% mid-June to 0.1% in August. Now, we've unwound part of that. Real yields are back to 0.6%, but they're still too low. So that means what started to become a growth-led rally, once again, is starting to reverse course, but has further to to fall from here. Mm. The other thing it means is investors have to take seriously the pricing of a mild recession next year. And that's what fueled the second leg of the rally in August was this belief that maybe there was a path for a soft landing and there wasn't a need to price as much recession risk into multiples, earnings and credit spreads. And we still need to unwind that optimism and better price in the economic risks as well. Read your notes today in which you say don't give up on the traditional 60-40 portfolio, which has been especially tough, obviously, in in the month of August in and of itself. Bonds down 3 percent, stocks down 4 percent. Why not give up on that? So I would say for two major uh, reasons. The first one is this encouraging upturn in the uh, uh, 40 part of the 60-40 or the core bonds part, which actually started to rally from mid-June to early August when yields were falling and there was still more of a recessionary concern. So bonds have started to act as a, as a diversifier again when there is recession risk. So that's really good thing. And we want to continue adding duration, core bonds as a hedge against that higher recession odd. The other uh, reason to not give up on the 60-40 is just where valuations are today. They're so much better than they were on January 1st. Uh, Multiples are still lower. Yields are higher. And that suggests much, much better returns ahead. Um, In in the past, we have had other moments where the 60-40 has been down over 10%. We've had, for example, nine years where that's happened historically. The following eight out of nine years, the 60-40 was actually up. Uh, the following year by an average 17 percent. So that's the kind of much better returns we expect if we zoom out the time horizon. Let me ask you lastly about the Fed. Does his, I guess you call it unexpected directness. Maybe that's how you, you come away from it thinking. It was unexpectedly direct. Does that lessen the chance for a surprise in the upcoming meeting? Does it put 75 basis points on the table in a, which, in a way that you didn't think existed? pre-speech. How do you think about those two things? So I don't think it changed the out the expectation for September too much. Going into Jackson Hole, there was already about a 68% probability of a 75 basis point hike. Markets were better priced in for that possibility. And it's still only 70. It's still at about 70% today. Um, we do think the odds of a 75 basis points are more likely than not, but will depend on the jobs data on Friday, as well as the August CPI data on September 13th. What I think it really changes is much more the outlook for rates in 2023, this expectation that we pivot from hikes to cuts so quickly. That's what's a next uh, very welcomely being shaken uh, by that speech that Powell gave. Uh, rate cuts have gotten pushed back a mm-hmm. little bit, but they're still there in expectations for the back half of 2023. We'd like to see those push back further before we really feel comfortable adding risk here. You and Loretta Mester uh, both, because those were her comments today, too. Basically, don't even think about the cuts. 
next year because we don't see it. Now, we'll see if they hold to that because maybe they can't uh, hold that to that. That would be surprised. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Gabriela, thanks so much. I'll talk to you soon. That's Gabriela Santos, J.P. Morgan Private Bank, joining us. Up next, a big call on PayPal as Bank of America upgrades that beaten down stock to a buy. Is the worst really over? We'll debate that in our halftime overtime. And don't forget, you can catch us on the go by following the Closing Bell podcast on your favorite podcast app. Overtime is back right after this. In today's halftime overtime, it's time to pay up for PayPal. That is the call from Bank of America today. They upgrade that stock to a buy. It's lost half of its value this year. Shannon Sakosha isn't convinced, though, to get back in just yet, at least until costs get more under control. It might be a little bit too early for us to go back into the space because we do think the payment space, to Amy's point, is incredibly competitive. Um, you're starting to see the stock down to evaluation where if you can bring costs in and you can start to focus on that revenue per user rather than net ads, um, this could be an opportunity. Well, Arias Asset Management CEO Carrie Firestone, she owns PayPal, joins us right now. So. Uh, it's nice to have you here. Uh, you have experienced the pain in this as much as anybody. What do you make of this call? Well, I'm sure there are plenty of people who have experienced pain, including the management of that company. And yes, it's down 70% over the last 18 months. It has not been a good stock to own. But here's the way we look at it now. It's one of these large cap tech names that really gained a lot through COVID. And it's cycled through its, in fact, most difficult comparisons. So now the comparisons get easier. It's been in the doghouse. It's starting to see something of a benefit from what they've experienced, and it's put pressure on them to cut costs. They've made a commitment to cutting $900 million in costs. They have Elliott Management breathing hard down their backs. They've got a stock price that's way down, and they're showing some respect for shareholders and commitment to doing things uh, that will improve margins. They also talked about how revenues were beginning to show a positive upturn, and we think next year in 2023 that the stock is going to do more than 20% earnings growth. It sells for um, like, slightly less than 20 times earnings. And at this price, we think all of the bad news is in the stock, and we're going to start to see tailwinds that can carry this forward. If, if Elliot, the activist, wasn't in this name, would you be anywhere close to as optimistic as you sound? Yes. Yes, because if he weren't there, there'd be other buyers who would see that it was a value at this price. PayPal's trading at value stock levels. It's attracted new buyers. And we owned it prior to Elliott being in it, and we would buy more of it. We had been buying more of it at these prices because okay. they're so low. All right. I appreciate you calling in. It's Kerry Firestone, Thanks. RES Asset Management, joining us on the phone. We are all over some big stock moves in overtime. Seema Modi is tracking that action for us. Hi, Seema. Scott, that's right. A cloud company soaring in the OT after forecasting sunny skies ahead, plus a software stock slumping after reporting results. We're going to break it all down when overtime returns. Welcome back. We're tracking the biggest movers now in overtime. Seema Modi here with that. Hi, Seema. 
Hey, Scott, let's draw your attention to shares of MongoDB falling in the OT despite reporting a smaller than expected loss last quarter. Revenues topping estimates, but guidance for the Q3 did come in a bit light. The company now forecasting a loss of 16 to 19 cents. That's worse than the 14 cents expected by Wall Street analysts. Stock is down 7%. Cloud company Nutanix surging, though, in the OT on a top and bottom line beat. Strong guidance, too, for the current quarter and full year. Shares are still down, though, about 45% this year. It's been a tough year for cloud stocks. Pure storage, that stock is popping on earnings. Both earnings and revenue topped estimates. The data storage company also painting a somewhat rosy picture for the future offering. Uh, Strong guidance for the third quarter. CEO Charles Giancarlo pointing to solid market share gains and the stock is up 7.6% here. Scott? Seema, thank you. That's Seema Modi. We're also watching shares of Disney in the OT. A scoop from the journal reporting that company exploring an Amazon Prime-like membership program. Packaging things like streaming, parks, and merchandise. It's an interesting story. We continue to follow that. Stock's a little bit higher uh, in overtime. One and two-thirds percent uh, there for Diz. All right, up next, ready to deliver. One money manager making a bull case for a struggling shipping stock. We'll bring you that name in our two-minute drill. And coming up at the top of the hour, August trading is in the books. Stock's still feeling the summer heat. Your September setup is ahead on Fast Money. Don't go anywhere. Overtime is right back. It's time for the two-minute drill. Joining me now is NFJ Investments' Burns McKinney. It's good to see you. Set up September for me first. What's going to happen this month? Well, investors are are focused currently on what the Fed is going to be doing at their next meeting, although we believe that the focus should really be not necessarily on what the Fed does in September, but how high rates get and how long they keep them that way. The equity investors were a little bit surprised by what Jay Powell had to say uh, in Jackson Hole, and they really shouldn't have been. Bond investors seem to have been pricing that in, and really what the Fed has done a good job of is trying to manage expectations. In many ways, what what Jay Powell's trying to be is the parent with kids in the backseat on a long road trip. They're saying, don't make me stop this car. You know, it's a you, you hope the threat works in and of itself. You don't actually hope to have to stop the car. Yeah, there's some belief as to whether he ever will stop that car. Anyhow, <laughs> let's talk stock picks for September. Number one, FedEx. We alluded to it in one of our teases. Why this one? Why now? Well, right now you're getting FedEx at about nine times earnings. The logistics and shipping peers trade about 15 times. UPS is about 15 times. So right now FedEx is trading at a discount to its peers and you're getting it for about half the market multiple. You have a dividend yield of about 2% that they raised earlier this year by 50%. That's a, a huge management vote of confidence in the direction of future earnings. And, you know, you've got a name there that you know, they benefit from rising demand for e-commerce. Yeah. And really, in an inflationary environment, inflate for to protect against inflation, pricing power is what you want. And because they have a duopoly with UPS, that's really proven to give them a fantastic uh ability to pass on price increases. Forgive me. I didn't mean to interrupt you there. Excuse me. Uh, Verizon, VZ, number number two pick. That's that's another one. Right now, it's even cheaper at about eight times earnings. This is the cheapest Verizon's been relative to the broader market in about a decade. Uh, It trades uh, at a discount to its uh, global telecom peers. You have one of the highest dividend yields in the uh, S&P 500. And again, that's supported by a fantastic free cash flow yield. And you, know, you look at the, the, the names like Verizon, they really benefit from just rising demand for digital content. In many ways, in, in today's economy, this is your new pick and shovel type play. And you know, they have a, a solid balance sheet. And because of investments in, um, in New Spectrum, uh, they should have one of the best uh, networks going forward. 
Of the two you have left on, on the list here, Baxter International Medical Devices and Lennox International, which you call a contrarian play, which of the two do you like the most? I think there's a great case to be made for the medical device companies like a Baxter. You're getting Baxter again. It trades at a discount to its peers, a discount to the market. It's a lot cheaper than it's historically traded. Uh, you have a name there. They do have a dividend yield of about 2%, and they dominate several markets in medicine delivery, things like, um, you know, I, it basically, uh, you know, dialysis equipment, IVs. Uh, really, the, a lot of what they treat are, um, you know, they, they provide non-discretionary consumables for chronic diseases, which means, for better or worse, a lot of what they're providing provides visible revenues, it provides predictable revenues, and it makes it defensive in what is likely to be a little bit of a volatile and an uncertain economic environment going forward. All right, we'll leave it there. Burns McKinney, thank you so much. We'll talk to you soon. Up next, it is Santoli's last word. Overtime's right back. Let's get the results of our Twitter question of the day. We asked you which of these August Dow duds is ready to rally in September. 48% of you said Salesforce. Nike was second, as you can sort of see. Let's get to Mike Santoli for his last word. All right, here we go. New month. Game on. Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, we'll probably be glad to see uh, August go, uh, even if September has a bad reputation. I don't know that there's a lot of comfort to be taken from the fact that the last 10 minutes of trading today looked like a very mechanical uh, kind of across-the-board sell uh, because, you know, it does leave uh, the market in a place where it's clear there's no motivated buyers willing to step in. I will mm, say mm -hmm. it seems as if whatever part of that June to August rally was based on the notion of peak Fed hawkishness, that part seems to have been given back. Whatever part of that rally was based on, hey, the economy looks like it's a little bit uh, more resilient than we uh, had, had feared, that seems to be still in place. Uh, so I think that's where it leaves us in a pretty uh, ambivalent spot. And you have to really believe in those technical signals off the June low to say uh, that the market could, could uh, make a stand soon here. So as you were talking and I'm listening and I'm writing down um, the key question, as I think you're alluding to, for, for an investor. What makes you buy in September? Is it a better than expected CPI read? Is it a suddenly dovish sounding Fed chair? Uh, I, I don't, what else could it be? It would certainly more likely be the former, and I think there's a good chance of that. Look, we were at the end of August. We know what the inputs to CPI are pretty much, uh, and it, they're relatively friendly, right? Gasoline cooperated. Most of the other, um, you know, kind of categories that were decelerating look like they're okay. I don't know if that's going to be enough. I don't know if two months of improvement is going to really encourage uh, folks. September in the midterm election year, and this is, you know, a reach, but it's the, kind of the low point of the entire four-year cycle. So it doesn't mean, uh, you know, September 1st, things get better. But what it does mean is we've already built in uh, a fair amount of pain. I think the big problem is valuation is defensible at these levels, but not compelling. So that isn't really uh, in the bull's arsenal to say uh, that I have to buy him here, at least not the, at the index level. And I wonder if this higher for longer idea that Mester was talking about today, Gabriela Santos mentioned as well, starts to take traction because that could impact things like we're not we don't know yet. For sure. Although I would say we were higher. We were in that range for a long time in like the early to mid 2000s. Yeah. And we didn't think of it as onerous. That's true. All right. Good stuff. Have a good night. I'll see you tomorrow for your last word. All right. Does it well. for us. Fast Money begins right now. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.